Hi, I'm Chris Mayer, and welcome back. In the last podcast, Colonel Rob Waring and I discussed the distinct and necessary characteristics of the land power domain that make it essential to achieve the end purposes of warfare. We also stressed that although land power is essential, it's not sufficient. As the invasion of the European continent in World War II demonstrated, land power dominance depended on dominance in the sea power and air power domains, and that remains true today as demonstrated in modern conflicts such as Operation Desert Storm. We may not notice that dependence today because no other power challenges our dominance in those domains. That may not be true in the near future. The emerging space power domain may in fact be particularly vulnerable. Colonel Jason Altieri, U.S. Army retired and instructor at the Air War College, joins me to examine the distinct and essential characteristics of sea power and what lessons we can draw from that for our understanding of space power in the ancient art of modern warfare. Hello, Jason. Hello, Chris. And before we begin, uh, the obligatory uh, any views or opinions I express today in this presentation are solely those of myself and do not necessarily represent those of the United States Air Force, the Air University, or the Air War College. You should, should not assume or construe that this presentation presented presents the opinions or practices of any of these organizations. And hello. <laughs> hello, Jason. And I'm happy to be doing this podcast today from sunny Cocoa Beach, Florida, where the temperatures are balmy 84 degrees right now. And I'm actually sitting just 10 miles from the SpaceX Demonstration 2 mission launch pad. Uh, where in about five hours we are going to put uh, two Americans back into space uh, from he from here in Florida. Uh, so this is very timely to be doing this podcast with you on such a momentous occasion. I agree, and I'm looking forward to the United States being able to enter the space power domain on our own again. Jason, in the last podcast, I mentioned that the success of D-Day required the prior establishment of sea power dominance. But what I didn't mention was that achieving that dominance was not a sure thing. But what is sea power dominance, and why was that so important in our war against Germany? Yeah, when you talk about sea power dominance, and we tend to think in terms of huge battleships or aircraft carriers engaging, engaging fleets over the horizon, so to speak, a very Mahanian approach. But in fact, sea power dominance is something that Corbett talked about years earlier when he, he uses this idea of choke points, of, of using points on the sea where you concentrate your forces or your mass, not just to influence an opponent's naval force, but to influence an opponent's economic power as well. Uh, convoys, and I'll, and I'll jump right into this, convoys were the key to the Allied success against Germany during the Second World War. Both Churchill and Roosevelt both uh, completely understood this, as did some commanders in the Third Reich. Without an, an unfettered flow of resources, of manpower and materials from the United States to Europe, 
the war would never have been won. And those flow and that flow of materials just didn't didn't come from the United States. That was also the flow of raw materials from Africa and South America to the United States where we could process it into goods and services we could use in the war. The whole idea that you could dominate the sea had to be in areas where it impacted most on the war effort. And that was the convoy routes. That's why the Germans put the resources they did into their wolf packs. That's why the United States and Great Britain put the resources they did into building Liberty ships in such a rapid method so that they could continue sending an unfettered flow across the Atlantic. That's the dominance of sea power and how it helps win wars, not these big battleship fights between the Bismarck and the Hood. In the last podcast, we identified distinct attributes of land power. First and foremost, soldiers, then presence, persistence, and versatility. How did these land power attributes compare with the enduring attributes of sea power? Sea power, like space power, operates in domains that, that utilize instruments of national power, interdependence with other operations, command of the sea and command of space are very similar. Uh, this idea of concentration and dispersal, very much a sea power type operating uh, domain and attribute, uh, certainly applies to space. And then you have these ideas of strategy of the offense, of the defense, and of isolation. Uh, in offense, power projection over the horizon. Of defense, defending those choke points, or Lagrange points, if you'd like to use that from a space term. And isolation, the idea of a blockade. All of these are very much attributes of sea power that can apply to the space power domain as well. Jason, you mentioned sea power attributes of power projection, concentration, choke points, and isolation. These are, in many ways, distinct from land power attributes. Can you describe how these attributes, possessed both by the German and Allied navies, affected the Atlantic campaign? Sure. Uh, if you want to talk about from the offense with the perspective, uh, the Kriegsmarine's ability to power project their U-boats right up to the American coastline during the Second World War, that was where we, that's where our convoys were most vulnerable. And you would think that's sort of counterintuitive that it's close to the shoreline. But in fact, when you're trying to assemble convoys, when you're operating in an environment of heavy traffic, that is a perfect operating environment for, for a U-boat to attack a convoy. The idea of the defense, protecting our convoys, of using these convoy routes to close things like the Atlantic Gap, of using air power and sea power to hold off those U-boat attacks, and using that strong defense to not only protect the convoys, but to eventually whittle down the amount of U-boats available to attack. And of course, isolation which is the entire idea of blockades. And one could make the argument that blockading Germany has been just part of the strategic war effort when you're fighting that particular nation historically, because Germany does not have access to raw materials. And the fact that the allies were able, both in the First World War and the Second World War, to isolate Germany from raw materials that idea of blockading and isolation is very much a, a sea power attribute that can apply to space as well. For the listeners, uh, I would strongly recommend, if you have the time, go off and take a look both on YouTube 
look up Victory at Sea, Sealing the Breach, and that will give you some examples of the kinds of things that Jason was just talking about. But for now, Jason, can you give some examples about how these attributes that you just mentioned, concentration, dispersal, isolation, power projection, and choke points, may be essential in future conflicts, such as in the Indo-Pacific region? Sure, and one just simply has to look to the Orient uh, around uh, China's coastal and littorials to provide a good example of those challenges. Uh, obviously, the Mahanian approach of great sea battles is not is not where the future lies, and it's more of a strategic containment approach that Corbett advocated in the 19th century. Uh, you have the Straits of Malacca, you have the uh, the, the Straits of Taiwan where you had the transiting uh, of cargo and oil oil vessels, particularly to, to our allies like Japan and Korea, keeping those sea lanes open is vital for U.S. national interests in the fact that those are our, those are our allies in the region and they depend heavily on the importing of raw materials and resources to keep their economic powerhouse going. Conversely, uh, you could look at the blockading strategy of of using those same sea routes to prevent materials going to say a peer competitor. Um, you pick your nation of choice there, but it does translate very nicely into the future as far as sea power application. At the beginning of this podcast series, I said I was going to try to avoid science fiction analogies, but in some ways it just can't be avoided. I think that most of the listeners to this podcast know that in science fiction, whether movies, TV, and even what's considered hard science fiction books, space forces are portrayed in nautical terms, like an interstellar navy. Even the name astronaut means sailor of the stars. Jason, do you think that the attributes of sea power dominance directly translate to space power dominance, or will the space domain have its own unique attributes? Chris, the answer to the question is yes and no, and I'll start from the yes side of it. Um, the earliest example, uh, if you want to talk about this idea of science fiction translating into the real hard sciences, the real hard thinkers of, of doctrine, uh, you just simply have to look at 2004, John J. Klein's paper, Corbett and Orbit, which he wrote for the Naval War College Review, which takes a lot of these science fiction ideas, and that's okay, you want to you need those kind of thinkers, but he starts applying it into a, a model that has validity and has applicability to U.S. national power. It's a great paper, and I would encourage your listeners to, uh, to get a copy and read it. Uh, the, you talk about the seafaring aspect of space. Yes, there's a lot of commonality there. Um, getting to your destination, controlling the littorials, the orbits around the Earth and Moon, uh, very much share a lot in the nautical aspects. As far as the no to that question, there are some things that are going to be uniquely space-centric. The fact of the matter is that when the first Army aviators stepped into the cockpit of an airplane, many of them had to be reminded, gentlemen, take your spurs off. And the fact is that when you go into space, you are now operating in a new domain that is going to develop its own, its own sets of doctrines and its own, its own way of thinking that is going to be different. Just like you have air-mindedness of airmen on, on the on the planet Earth, 
there will be a way of thinking of the of space that we may call space mindedness in the future that is going to be different than the way we think currently on on land or air or sea today Jason, thank you so much for coming with us on the Ancient Art of Modern Warfare to discuss how sea power and uh, especially sea power dominance may affect uh, sp space power theory. Before we go, and I say thank you and goodbye, is there anything else you'd like to add to it? Chris, thank you for having me back on again. Uh, for your listeners, I might recommend uh, two books if they want to uh, just have a little more foundation on this particular subject. Uh, the first one is Astropolitics, the classical geopolitics in the space age by Everett C. Dolman. And I also would recommend The Heavens and Earth, A Political History of the Space Age by Walter A. McDougall. Uh, both of the books are, in fairness to your listeners, slightly dated in that they were published uh, just, after, just before um, 2004. But they do provide a very good foundation on how people and how theorists are looking at space power in the future. So thank you again for having me on and uh, look forward to discussing with you uh, other uh, fascinating topics in the future. In fact, Jason will be joining us again next time for a discussion of the air power domain on the ancient art of modern warfare. Please come back for that.